One focus, one subject. Welcome to The Real Story, the podcast that brings together global experts to explain one issue shaping the news. BBC World Service podcasts are supported by advertising. This is The Real Story with me, Julian Warricker. On Thursday, a flight from South Africa landed in the Nigerian city of Lagos. There's nothing unusual about that. But what made this flight stand out from others is that it carried 188 people who were the first of a contingent of Nigerians being evacuated from South Africa after a series of attacks on foreign-owned businesses. They're returning home following a wave of anti-immigrant violence in cities including Pretoria and Johannesburg. I lost a car. I have the papers here. My car was one of the cars burned. With the whole situation, killing and looting shops and everything, I just decided, no, it's time to come back home. I went there to South Africa when I was just six years old. I used our ten years there. So coming back, it's a new experience, so I'm happy. My workshop is damaged. Everything there is burnt and I just have to run away for my life. I haven't been able to get out of my house and I've also experienced verbal rants of a lot of South Africans talking about specific African nationals. And I thought to myself, these are the same African nationals who helped you during apartheid. I think it's a shame that in the African continent we still have a situation of blacks killing blacks. Well, the spark for the violence is disputed, but it's been widely reported that it began after lorry drivers staged a strike to protest against the employment of foreigners. In all, 12 people have been killed, including two foreign nationals, in these latest attacks. Siabonga Mota is a journalist and presenter of Voice of Vits FM. That's in Johannesburg. Two weeks ago, the looting started not so far from where I stay, which is like Johannesburg and Chippestown. They said that they're targeting shops that are owned by foreign nationals, but it is, this is mainly shops. Every shop was actually destroyed and looted, even shops that are owned by South Africans, including bottle stores, furniture shops, supermarkets. Like a lot of property was destroyed that were owned by South Africans and as well as foreign nationals. So it was, I wouldn't say it was targeted at some people, but it was just the looting that really affected everyone. Have you heard, though, shouts, chants from people implying that there is an anti-foreigner element to this? There's been talks when um, on last Sunday when Prince Magosotukutelezi, where he came to Chippestown to address the community, it was clear that they were, they were dancing and obviously chanting around saying that they don't want foreign nationals in South Africa. And obviously they said they're giving the government 24 hours, of which now I think it's about 72 hours. Um, the government didn't say anything about it. But yeah. They were, dance, they were dancing and chanting and they were walking around the streets of, of Chippistan and protesting against the foreign nationals. Is it clear how organised that kind of behaviour is? I mean, are there people in charge? Is it orchestrated? What's happening? The hostel dwellers are being led by, we call them Izinduna, so it's mainly like the leaders. The leaders who are being appointed to, to lead a group of people from certain villages um, and live in hostels. But now, in fact... It's everyone. Siobonga Motor. Well, these attacks are not new, but unlike in previous years, the reaction from the rest of the continent, from Ethiopia to Zambia to Nigeria, has been much stronger this time. Artists have cancelled events. Radio stations have stopped playing South African music. And South African businesses have been attacked in retaliation elsewhere. 
The violence has raised a number of questions about the state of the South African economy, about attitudes within South Africa to people living and working there who come from other African countries, about xenophobia and about fake news because some of the videos shared online about current events have turned out to be old or even not from South Africa at all. So what's behind the attacks? Are they purely economic or are they a reflection of a greater intolerance in society? How dependent is the South African economy on foreign workers and what impact will the negative reaction on the continent have? And does the government have a plan to bring an end to these attacks for good? My guests throughout are Professor Lauren Landau, Senior Researcher at the African Centre for Migration and Society, Nomfundu Mahafi, Executive Director at the Centre for the Study of Violence and Reconciliation, Varashni Pile, South African journalist and editor. All three of those are in Johannesburg. Here in London is Jason Robinson, Senior African Analyst at the research organisation Oxford Analytica. And a little bit later on in the programme, we'll be joined by the national spokesman for the governing ANC in South Africa, Dakota Lehuete. A fairly straightforward first question. Is this just a case of xenophobia or is it more complicated than that? Varashni Pile, what's your take on it? So there's been a lot of contestation about the idea that this is surely just xenophobic attacks, and not least of all from our government, who prefers to label it criminality quite disingenuously after they themselves were responsible for stoking much of the tensions previously. But from the numbers that are coming out, we understand that 12 people were killed and 10 of those were South African. So it's getting harder and harder to understand whether this is just xenophobic violence, simply put, or whether there's something far more nuanced and that we need to unpack going on here. Uh, Lauren Landau, what's your take on it? Well, clearly the xenophobia is is part of the story here. And as you heard, people are angry and and that anger is being directed uh, at least discursively at, at foreign nationals. But I think we, while it's easy to think about this as the kind of rise of global xenophobia that we've seen in the UK or the United States or Europe, this is something that's very much rooted in local governance. It's rooted in who is it that controls these areas, whether it's the Indunas, those, those sort of leaders that you heard about, or community associations. And it's the way they are mobilizing violence to eliminate competition, to get resources, to express anger. And I think this is really, it's worse in some ways than just anti-immigrant rhetoric. Nom Fundu Mahafi, a first thought from you on, on what lies behind this. Yeah, look, when this happens, what we say is CSVR from just having gone in and really understood the eruptions when they've happened is that is not a matter of either or. That we've inherited a society that has deeply entrenched intolerance, and xenophobia is one of them. So it's really important to also have a nuanced understanding of the psychological architecture of a society and why we have some of the issues that we're having. Jason Robinson, a first thought from you on, on what might lie behind this. I think just to echo some of the previous points, there's a whole mix of issues. I think low-level xenophobic violence is happening all the time. Um, the police don't categorize uh, murders of foreign nationals as a separate category. So there's a bit of a, yeah. a muddying of the waters in terms of how many are actually killed. And it, it probably works to the authorities' favor that we don't know, you know, that it's not out in the public di- discourse. 
So I think that there's a whole host of issues. I think to echo some of the previous points, you know, we have official unemployment at around 29%. The expanded mm. definition is up near 40%. Mm. Youth unemployment is over 50%. And I think um, one issue which we might touch on is the disjoint between the official government rhetoric about attracting skilled immigrants and South Africa being open for business and then the political posturing and the populism that's not only within the ANC, but also other political parties. So um, Herman Mashaba, the mayor of Johannesburg, he gets a lot of the blame for some of the uh, pockets of violence we've seen, not uh, most recently, but previous before that, some hardline comments about illegal immigrants as criminals. Uh, the DA, the main opposition for the 2019 election campaign, had a Secure Our Borders uh, slogan as one of their chief concerns. And the ANC have also played to that as well. And even the health, the then health minister last year said that it was migrants who were straining the health system. It didn't prove, didn't bring any facts to bear on the issue, mm. but it, it plays to kind of uh, prejudices that are there already. Mm. Um, there's a lot in your first four answers, all of you. Uh, I think they fall under the heading of more nuanced and more complicated and certainly a lack of data in some areas as well that might add to the the focus uh, for this and being certain of exactly what's happening and, and who the main victims are. We'll come back to some of those points in a moment. I want to bring you this voice, Stanley Uber, who's a Nigerian pastor who's been living in South Africa for seven years. How does he explain the reasons for Nigerians deciding to leave South Africa for good? Nigerians have lost hope on the side of authority in addressing these issues because this is not the first time this kind of attack is um, happening in, in the Republic. They've raised alarms on several occasions, you know, on these kind of attacks. And um, over and over again, little or nothing has been done by the authority to really address this issue once and for all. Why do you think this is happening now? I would say this is happening now due to pressure. Looking at the economy of the country, the economy is not doing quite well right now at the moment. So, the citizens are really concerned about the state of the nation and they want the authority to do something urgent, swiftly, to address the issues. And this is not happening very fast. And this has triggered anger and aggression and which has led to these current attacks we now witness. It seems as if we are the major targets. So it's better to go home to be safe. But this is not the first time we're having these issues. Stanley Uber, a Nigerian pastor who's been living in South Africa for seven years. The appeal of South Africa, Jason Robinson, to those from outside the country, when you look back in recent times and you look at the numbers who have moved there from other parts of Africa, what's been the reason? Is it purely economic or is there more to it than that? I think that's a, a major focus of it. Basically, South Africa is the economic hub of the continent. And when it's doing well, it, it lifts up the rest. And I think one of the interesting things is, even though we had the debilitating 2008 violence, we also had the 2015 violence, people are still going to South Africa. It's still a quite an attractive place to go in terms of opportunities around the major urban centres. But with that comes those pressures that we've touched on. You know, Nigeria has been the most vocal in, and we've had the repatriation in the past days, but arguably countries in the Southern African development community, neighbouring countries have been 
affected just as much, if not more. And have reacted quite strongly. Yes, yeah. And I suppose the Nigerian element has a few layers to it. There's the human and, and social element, which is protecting its citizens, which is completely legitimate. And then there is perhaps some of the, the power play, you know, the foreign policy element to it as well. I want to get onto that a little bit later on in the programme. Varashni, you heard our pastor and he was talking about the number of Nigerians leaving and why they're doing it and was talking about them being targeted. I mean, is it clear whether Nigerians are being targeted here? Or not? From what I've seen, it's not entirely clear, but I'm sure my co-panelists um, will have more information. But I think there's a lack of data, and it's very hard to really understand what is happening without this data. And also the power play is very important. We know that there is a history of diplomatic tension between our government and Nigeria's government. And there's a lot of flexing, so to speak, of various muscles at various times. So I think there's a little bit of that to be taken into consideration. But in my uh, anecdotal lived experience here in South Africa, it seems that the violence is pretty indiscriminate Mm -hmm. in terms of the foreigners that it is attacking. And even... Zimbabweans who are probably the, the best at kind of blending in from up north. I mean, obviously, people from Lesotho and Swaziland probably blend in the best. But uh, people from like, Zimbabwe, especially from the Ndebele tribe, they do tend to learn the South African languages pretty quickly. They, they tend to look similar, but even they are being targeted. So it's hard to say that Nigerians specifically are being targeted. Can I bring Nomfundu and, and Lauren in on that point specifically? Nomfundu, this lack of data, is that because it simply isn't there? It's difficult to work out what's happening or is there, or is there something else going on? Look, I mean, we have been saying that even today we've just had our crime stats being released and we're saying that it will really be good for us to be able to have that analysis of which particular groups are actually involved so that we can be able to check this or not. But I think for me, the biggest issue is the fact that the people that tend to be generally affected is mainly foreign nationals of African origin. So there's a very strong race component to this, almost like this internalized racism and the hate of the other that looks like me, which has very strong psychological components to it. And I also wanted to just touch briefly on what the reasons why people come here, because mm. at the Center for the Study of Violence and Reconciliation, we've got a trauma clinic where we work directly with refugees and migrants. Um, when people talk, usually differentiate, try to differentiate between a forced migrant as a result of conflict and as a result of economic issues. But we are finding increasingly with the clients that come to us that it's really difficult to differentiate those issues. And most of these migrants don't come here because they want to. They will tell you that I don't want to be here. It's difficult mm. in South Africa, but back at home is tough. Mm. I was just in Zimbabwe a few days ago. It is terrible. People come here because they are desperate. And I think our challenge at CSVR is that organizations like um, UNHOCR, they would invest in funding refugees, but there's not sufficient work done with the host country. So South Africans are not prepared to say, how do you work in integrating these, the non-nationals who come here? What are the reasons for them to come here? So the work of beginning to do integration work within communities themselves is not sufficient, especially considering the history of South Africa and the history Mm. of intolerance and segregation and separation. Uh, uh, Lauren Landau, it's also worth, I suppose, putting into context the fact that sadly, South Africa does have high levels of violent crime crime anyway, mm, yeah. Yeah. doesn't it? And it would be wrong to suggest that this is something entirely unique within that greater context. Yeah, I think one of the things my colleagues and I at WITS have been doing through our Watch platform is to really try to develop a data set on violence that seems to be targeted at foreigners. And it's very clear that 
that often happens in areas with high levels of crime, but it is still targeted. And, and to dispute a little bit what my colleagues have said, mm. it is not just targeted at Africans. It's targeted at particular economic sectors, particular mm. people who are trading or seen as economic threats. So in some places, that's Nigerians. In some places, it's Somalis. In some places, it's Bangladeshis and mm. Pakistanis. And what we're starting to see is that it's also being targeted at South Africans of Indian descent who are being told that they're also foreign and that they need to leave the townships. And, and some of this is rooted in, in areas where there's a lot of conflict. Uh, it's people being upset not just by um, and despondent, not just at the lack of jobs, but also at the lack of, of politics. They are, these, the, the violence tend to happen in areas where you have very low levels of voter turnout, mm. where you have very little participation in formal political spaces. These are people do – it's a kind of do-it-yourself politics, mm. and it's a kind of do-it-yourself enforcement of the immigration laws, which as much as the government talks about being hard and being – reinforcing the law, they themselves don't enforce the law. They themselves are in, in contempt of court when it comes to, to providing refugees with assistance, but, for example. But when you talked about that list of, of people from different countries and you talked about South Africans of Indian descent, were you also hinting at the fact that because of people doing certain jobs that they are more likely to be targeted because those doing the targeting feel that those jobs could or should have been theirs? Yeah, I think that's part of it. When some of the attacks on Nigerians are because they're accused of selling drugs right. or being mm. involved with sex work. But most of the attacks that we've seen are on these kind of small, what we call spaza shops, sort of small shops in the township selling airtime, selling uh, basic supplies. And those people are being attacked not just by ordinary citizens, but often by groups of South African businessmen or women who want those people out of the township because that's their competition. And that's organized then, isn't it? That, that's not spontaneous. It's organized, but it's organized at a very local level. And while all of these other elements of the psychology and the kind of despondency play into it, it only happens in very particular sorts of places. And in almost every one of those, there is an association or a group that's behind it. Um, Varashni Pillay, I wanted to ask you about, I mentioned fake news at the start of the program as well. Um, How much is that playing into this in that occasionally, clearly things have appeared online, which may have been ostensibly showing a violent attack of recent days in South Africa, which turned out not to be that at all. So the issue of the fake news around xenophobic violence falls under a larger issue, which is growing distrust in the media. Increasingly, the media and journalists in South Africa, if not the world, are seen as part of the elite. So the people most affected by the xenophobic violence on either side, the people that Lauren is kind of referencing, are very unlikely to be going online and finding these things. What's happening is that these things are spreading through what we call dark social, and that's messenger services. So that's WhatsApp, that's Facebook. So um, South Africa's media is pretty robust in many ways. You know, there's, there's pretty good... Um, sort of boundaries in place and, and, and policies to prevent these kind of things from happening. But when you have audiences and citizens having such low trust in the media, whom they see as being untransformed, and as I said, part of the elite, you will have them turning to each other. And in a parallel to what Lauren said, you know, this kind of self-governance, do it yourself, the same thing with the spread of these fake videos. They're going to spread it themselves and say, either look at what the South Africans are doing to us or look at what we should say, be doing. I was going to say, I mean, rumors spread, uh, and yes, that can be quite yeah. damaging. And I think... Um, the issue of the fake news shows up the schisms in our society. I mean, to talk about the list of foreign nationals that are being targeted, or even South Africans, I'm a South African of Indian descent. There's no way I'm being targeted if I open a business. This really is something that is happening in 
parts of our society that have been so neglected and feel so divorced from our mainstream middle class reality. Jason, I wanted to ask you about uh, the economics of the immigration as it as it stands. I mean, how dependent, for example, is the South African economy at the moment on workers from outside South Africa coming in and doing what they do? Well, it's, it's obviously an important component and there are certain sectors where uh, foreign migrants will be uh, more important than others. I think what we've seen previously and what we're seeing now is that the long-term damage. The South African economy is in the doldrums as it is at the moment. It's barely going to get growth of maybe 0.6% at the moment. I think overall migration adds, I think, five percentage points, I think is the figure that comes to mind. But the worry is that over the long-term in conjunction with South Africa's kind of diplomatic heft and kind of the sheen going off, the rainbow nation as it was back in the day, that it, it really undermines President Ramaphosa's investment drive. It really undermines mm. the perception that this is a place that's open for business. Because it looks bad, doesn't it? If you're a potential investor and you see this going on, you're going to think twice. And the thing is, you know, we've touched on the nuances about where the violence is happening. But the South African government can't come out and say, look, don't worry, it's only poor people who are getting attacked. You know, that's not a, not a great slogan. And and the issue is the nuance is lost internationally in terms of who's yeah. getting attacked. It feeds into perceptions. You know, Johannesburg, it's taken a long time for Johannesburg to get past that international perception of being crime ridden and a place you wouldn't want to go to. You know, it was always Cape Town was the, the hub for, for international tourists. Mm-hmm. And, and now we're going back to that place where the idea of car jackings and things like this, it, it all feeds into this, you know, over the past year and a half of Ramaphosa in power, foreign policy is, has been to one side in many respects because he's had to focus on so many domestic issues. And where it's flared up is things like uh, land reform. And you get Donald Trump making tweets that are misguided and not based on fact. But that's where it, you know, it reaches some international audiences. And the same with the xenophobia. The optics are just really bad. Nomfundo, um, I sensed you were, you were keen to come in at that point. So by all means, react to what Jason has just said. I think the issue that we also need to bring in this discussion is the whole issue of leadership Mm. because we do have um, a challenge in terms of how our own leadership are dealing with these issues and how they tend to fuel these issues when they are engaging. For example, I think the Siabonga, when he was talking, he talked about the role of the Izindunas Mm. in driving some of this violence. And the other violence on Sunday happened when... Mangosutu Butelezi went to talk to the people. So there's when something around... When he was trying around, to counter Xenophobia. When he was, he was trying to counter it, but there is something around the capacity of leaders. Again, I will go back to the fact that our leaders don't fully appreciate even the psychological architecture, mm. that our people are triggered. Yeah. And when you are in a state of triggering, even careless comments like some of our leaders have made to say, well, the Nigerians must take their people because they are, they are committing drugs. How do you say a statement like that in the level of triggering that people are at? Because the society currently need to be contained. At a later stage, we can discuss other issues. So there's a big issue around our leaders' ability to read the environment in South Africa and then respond in a way that doesn't fuel uh, more problems and therefore sabotage the, the, the same vision that the leaders have in terms of where they want to go. And just to remind you, you're listening to a podcast edition of The Real Story from the BBC World Service, this week looking at violence against foreigners in South Africa. Each week we tackle a different topic and you can download the programme every Friday. I'm encouraging you to subscribe so you won't miss an edition and there are also many other BBC World Service podcasts to choose from. You could try Witness, 
our history series told by the people who were there. First-hand accounts of some of the most important events which have helped to shape our lives and the places we live. There are five podcasts a week and an incredible archive to delve into. And please let us know what you think of this podcast from The Real Story or any ideas for topics you'd like us to look into. You can email us at therealstory at bbc.co.uk. But now let's get back to this edition of The Real Story with me, Julian Warwicker, looking at xenophobia in South Africa and my guests. With me throughout, Professor Lauren Landau, Senior Researcher at the African Centre for Migration and Society. Nomfundu Mahafi, Executive Director at the Centre for the Study of Violence and Reconciliation. Varashni Pile, South African journalist and editor. All three of them are in Johannesburg here in London. Jason Robinson, Senior African Analyst at the research organisation Oxford Analytica. Earlier in the programme, we discussed the possible causes of the violence. Coming up, more on the way other countries have reacted, especially Nigeria, and reaction to recent events from a spokesman for the African National Congress. So let's look at that diplomatic fallout, first of all. Um, Lauren Landau, a word to you about relations between South Africa and Nigeria and how uh, they have played out in recent times and therefore inform what's happening now. What's your reading of that? Well, I think there has been, as Varashni was saying before, a kind of global competition between the two. You know, they've been vying for who is the biggest economy in in Africa. Although I think when you look at at the basis, South Africa is very clearly the most diversified and Mm -hmm. and perhaps the most imperialist of the the economies. And I think it's that kind of expansionist agenda that's really at stake here. Uh, After the violence happened in 2015, uh, Nigeria walloped uh, uh, one of the South African cell phone companies, MTN, with something close to a billion-dollar fine, basically as punishment. And what you're seeing in in Nigeria, in Congo, in Tanzania, is local businesses using this as a lever against South African business to say, look, why would we allow these people into our country when they Mm -hmm. treat us so badly back in their own home country? And I think this is – so Nigeria being so big, it means more coming from them. But I think it's going to hurt South Africa not just economically but politically in terms of its soft power across the continent. But these are – countries that would have been so supportive of the majority black population in South Africa during the apartheid era. Yeah, I mean, these are countries that that supported South Africa. These were countries, I think, that embraced South Africa after 1994 and at least initially welcomed South African investment as part of global trade, as part of expanding uh, opportunities for everyone. But what we've seen recently, not just in the last few weeks, but over the last few years, is a recognition that South Africa doesn't play fair, that South Africa doesn't welcome uh, 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 sort of continental initiatives, is really in it for itself. And this sort of plays into that narrative. Uh, Nomfunda Mahafi, that's quite a big shift of, of thinking, isn't it, among uh, uh, South Africa's neighbours? Yeah, look, I think there is a um, big question that just has to be asked in Africa around the emergence of the elite from even what Lauren was saying, most of this, whether it's in South Africa or, or is, is what's happening in Nigeria, it's mainly either the, the political elite or the business elite fighting their wars with the people on the ground being the ones that get affected. Because at the end of the day, and this is the question that I've been asking, who benefits from the xenophobia, but most importantly, who actually suffers? 
the people who suffers the most are the people on the ground. I mean, as they say, that when the elephants fight, it's the grass that suffers. Mm. Even what's happening in, as Lawrence says, in Nigeria is mainly business trying to advance their own needs and, uh, and in the name of what is happening mm. in South Africa. But that's interesting. I mean, you, you know, people listening will think back to when Nelson Mandela was elected in 1994, which represented an enormous change yeah. in the way that country looked to the outside world, not only uh, to those living in South Africa, but what you're hinting at is that while that was a huge change, actually now quite a lot of what was there before is still there. Yeah, I mean... Interestingly, Nelson Mandela himself said, I have not yet given you freedom, but I've given you the freedom to be free. It was just the beginning of freedom. There was a lot of work that still needed to happen in terms of socioeconomic transformation, which we didn't do sufficiently enough. And in Africa generally, I don't think there's been sufficient questioning of elitism in Africa and those that have in power and how they have perpetuated the very same things that were done by their oppressors. Um, I'll come to you, Varashni and Jason, in a moment on, on that and the other reaction that there's been close to South Africa. Um, but here's specific reaction. This is from uh, Hot FM. It's a Zambian radio station that has banned South African music as a result of these recent attacks. Uh, Gary Masano is its programmes manager. As a radio station, we thought, why not switch off all South African music from our playlist and do a statement which we shared on our social media platform our retaliation is not like attack, attack. We have a lot of South Africans here in the country. We still embrace them. We're still around with them and everything else. It's just that we've said, we're going to pull your music. And until such a time where we feel, oh, okay, our friends, brothers and sisters have sort of like come down. We're coming to terms. We'll push back the South African music onto our airwaves. Gary Masano in Zambia uh, Varashni Pile, does the reaction from South Africa's neighbours look different to you this time? Well, there's been, I think, looks different to everyone. There's absolutely a feeling of uh, of people, you know, kind of drawing a line this time round. I, I, I think previously, perhaps we were able to maybe bluff our way through it, and this time there has be, attitudes have certainly hardened. And I think when you see. Um, high-profile uh, musicians arguing from, from different countries. You had Burner Boy, a.k.a. who was a South African rapper, um, in a heated argument about the attacks, and especially those against Nigerian foreign nationals, because as much as we have this economic competition with Nigeria, we also have a bit of a music competition. And um, South Africans adore uh, Nigerian music and vice versa. So it, when it starts to touch that many parts of our relationship, you know that we're in trouble. And just, again, anecdotally for me, I'm involved in like networks of uh, young entrepreneurs across the continent. And there's a lot of a, a sense of betrayal. So our image has taken a huge knock. And as Lauren referenced earlier, we do have a bit of an imperialist um, kind of slant to our image anyway. We often uh, refer to jokingly as the US of, of, of the continent in terms of how we uh, always go after our own interests and can be quite arrogant. So this is really not helping things. But, that, but, but again, going back to what we were saying a moment ago, uh, the reaction a few years ago when similar violence mm. took place was different. So I wonder yes. whether the patience of the neighbours has somehow run out. So I think when it happened t- almost 10 years ago for the first time in 2008, we were all kind of maybe coasting along still on that, on that promise of South Africa being some kind of miracle nation. And I think 10 years later, there are younger, angrier people across the continent and, and in South Africa, so, you know, not as willing to put up with, with this sort of thing. Jason, let me bring you in on that, this idea that, you know, 25 years on since Nelson Mandela became 
president. Um, clearly, there has been an enormous amount of progress, but there is still a great deal more progress to make and that people are beginning to feel differently about the country when they live there and are looking upon it differently when they are outside it. South Africa as an outlier, it, it kind of sees itself as quite exceptional, which can also infuriate its neighbours and others on the continent. It's seen as arrogant. It's interesting. I think there's comparable populisms at play both in Nigeria and South Africa because there's been about 5,000 jobs lost in Lagos State as a result of these riots. And also it's a symptom similar to South Africa of young unemployed people who are getting incredibly frustrated at the lack of job opportunities and the lack of progress. And we're seeing the the impact of state capture and the hollowing out of institutions. Foreign policy suffered as well. In, in uh, what way specifically? Uh, negative approaches we saw with uh, Bashir, uh, the Sudanese leader. We saw the um, plans to leave the International Criminal Court. And um, we saw some decisions when it was on the UN Security Council and things like this where that kind of Mandela sheen kind of went away and it was seen as self-interest. I think xenophobia while it's on the international agenda now and it's definitely on the domestic agenda. But the big worry is that <laughs> it won't be tackled anytime soon. And every time these attacks start, the, the concern is, is it going to flare up and spread like it did in 2008 and 2015? And the issue of leadership has been found wanting a lot in the past, the past 18 months. Uh, let me bring another voice in on this, because listening to it, certainly the last part of our conversation is uh, Dakota Lehuete, a national spokesman for the governing ANC in South Africa. And he joins us on the line. Uh, Dakota Lehuete, welcome to the programme. Thank you for coming on. No, thank you very much. And to all the listeners at all. I want to ask you first about how South Africa looks as a result of this group of Nigerians wanting to leave your country, some of whom have now arrived back in Lagos. From a purely image point of view, the signal that sends to the rest of the world, it doesn't look good, does it? As the ANC, we condemn the recent developments in South Africa in the strongest terms, particularly the unfortunate act of uh, attacks on foreign nationals in particular from the continent. Yes, the ANC would not want to encourage that. It's uh, quite embarrassing that some of the nationals, uh, foreign nationals had to leave our country unprepared after something very horrible happened to them, which is despicable and cannot be encouraged that uh, these particular attacks started in Sunnyside, like I explained yesterday, where there was a squabble between a taxi operator and a Nigerian national uh, who later shot at the taxi operator and taxi people took it upon themselves to attack foreign nationals in Sunnyside, which government has since arrested them. We've talked about earlier in the programme those who have taken to the streets and have chanted that they want foreigners to go home. Now, where does that come from? One of the issues raised in the programme has been that on occasions politicians have spoken carelessly about the impact that foreigners in South Africa have had on the country. Do you acknowledge that? Any leadership needs to act with the necessary caution, right. with the necessary respect, and their tone must assist us in building a nation, in growing the economy, in ensuring that with little that we have, we can do our best to assist our citizens and those who are within our boundaries. And I think we have said it categorically as the NC in the past, that it is wrong, any leader, be it of the governing party or the opposition, to stand up on a stage 
and infuriate and encourage violence against any foreign nationals, including our own nationals, because people who have also suffered in this, our local business, our local people, it was not only foreign nationals. You will even see from statistics of people who died in a majority out of this particular tax. Yeah, no, we, out we, of 10, we have acknowledged uh, that, and we've talked about the fact that some South African businesses have clearly been affected by what's gone on as well. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, but there appears to have been a reluctance among figures in authority in South Africa to describe this as xenophobia. Are these xenophobic attacks in some cases? I, I would understand that there's been that particular reluctance of calling this xenophobic attack. But do you call them xenophobic even, attacks? Yeah, even our locals also have suffered a blow sure. out of this development. But when, when it's not local people, when it's foreign workers, are these xenophobic attacks? Look, I, I would not want to speak with authority that these are xenophobic attacks. This started in Pretoria where there was a problem, and this particular problem was then abused by opportunists and criminal elements who went to loot at shops, many of whom are owned by foreign nationals, and as a result of that, they were attacked. That one, I can partly agree with it, but we have never had a history of uh, xenophobia as a serious matter in South Africa. Even before 1994, we have had foreign nationals in our country who were working in mines, who were working in manufacturing of companies, we're all over in the country. And we have never had a situation where any one of them were attacked okay. on any uh, one, one last point, if I may, and this is a wider point, and it was raised by some of the guests earlier on in the programme. We were talking about the backdrop of the fact that, sadly, there are high levels of violence and violent crime in South Africa. Do you accept that the South African government thus far has failed to effectively tackle that issue? It's true that uh, there is a challenge of violence and violent crimes in South Africa. And some of it, it has to do with an abuse of alcohol and the challenge of drugs that we have, and which some of it led to the problems that uh, today is called xenophobia. Well, you're making a point about wider crime and that, you know, nobody is going to argue with, with the point that you just made. But um, uh, we appreciate your time. Thank you very much indeed for coming on. Uh, Dakota Lehwete, National Spokesman for the Governing ANC. Uh, let me go back to my uh, guests and talk about the future and maybe pick up any points you heard from our ANC spokesman. How do we move forward from this? Um, Nomfundu Mahafi, what's your take on that? Yeah. <laughs> a, heavy, a heavy sigh. Okay. Yes. I think, first of all, I just, as a South African and as a Pan-Africanist, would like to appeal to our leaders to be responsible around the things that they say. I don't know why we are so scared to accept that we have serious problems with intolerance, including xenophobia. If we don't call it for what it is, we will never address it. And acknowledging that you accept that there's issues with xenophobia does not mean that you don't acknowledge the socioeconomic stuff. So the kind of rhetoric that we are hearing, which says there's no problem, but then even the suggestion now that our ANC person has had is almost saying, yeah, but it is the Nigerian national who is to blame for this. Highly problematic. And secondly, I think my challenge is the fact that Africa is now responding. And our vision of, of pan-Africanism and a united Africa is being sabotaged. And basically, as a continent, we are just stuck in this conflict cycle. It's attack and defend, you know. And we need leadership that is able to speak boldly against xenophobia, 
talk about uniting us whilst still addressing the socioeconomic stuff. And Africa cannot afford to be divided. We need each other in order to be able to achieve our socioeconomic prosperity. I I, I think that is really what we need to begin to look at Um, now. Jason Robinson, a thought maybe on what you heard from the ANC and also the way forward picking up on what Nomfundu just said. Yeah, just the echo of the previous comments. There's this constant tension where the... uh, (laughs) The government, there are reforming pragmatic elements within the government. And I have no doubt that President Ramaphosa and Finance Minister Tito Mbaweni, um see migrants and skills and the importance of this. There's that official narrative that the country is a welcoming place. It's open for business. And then there's that tension and there's the populism that's below that. And um, you know, the fact that Julius Malema of the Economic Freedom Fighters looks like the reasonable one this past week or two says a lot about the lack of leadership. And I think um, it would be remiss to place too much blame, but definitely one of the reasons is the ANC as a ruling party is hugely divided internally between populists and more moderate pragmatic figures. And um, and the president would fall into the latter category. Yeah, and, and repeatedly when I think South Africans have been crying out for Ramaphosa to show some leadership, he, he's a big fan of consultation, compromise, consensus, and it takes time. Mm. But for certain issues, you need leadership. Varashni Pillay, t- take us forward from where we are. So absolutely, we need to uh, explore the, you know, the hypocrisy, quite frankly, of our politicians who, who try to put the genie back in the bottle, as it were. Um, they go to the easy hit of, of stoking xenophobic tensions around the time of elections. And this includes the so-called moderate DA, you know, our main opposition party, Democratic which alliance, yes. I think people were very startled, jumped onto the xenophobic bandwagon in the last electoral campaign. And so just pick apart that hypocrisy point. So you're talking mm. about people who, on the one hand, will say, yes, we welcome people to come from other countries to work here. They benefit the economy, but when they feel it might be uh, electorally beneficial, they will be more critical uh, of that influx and the effect they might have on on the existing population's employment prospects. I mean, it's the difference between expats and, uh, you know foreigners, people from, you know, the Western nations, first world con- developed countries, rather, we treat very differently. I mean, we don't give them the easiest time in terms of legal documents and all of that. But, you know, they're not subject to the same kind of um, prejudice that, you know, so-called African migrants are. And this is the kind of thing, it's like a Pandora's box. Once you open it, you can't close it. Uh, Lauren Lander, how does this inform, do you think, future immigration policy in South Africa? I mean, Jason Robinson was talking earlier on about the draw of South Africa to those from outside, even when economic it's hitting tough times. D- does this change the thinking of government of whatever hue when it comes to future immigration policy, do you think? It strengthens the hand of people in the parties who would like to say, we need to stop immigration. What's happened over and over... Stop completely? Uh, well, we've heard, uh, maybe not stop completely. We need highly skilled people. We, we need the doctors and the engineers. But even there, I think there's been an effort to say those are jobs South Africans should now take. And I think this, what, what's happened in the past around this sort of violence and what's happening now is to say the problem of the violence is because there's too many foreigners. If we're able to stop the foreigners from coming, South Africans wouldn't be angry. They wouldn't feel threatened. And so the solution to the violence is not to address the underlying structural issues, the underlying governance issues or the psychological issues, but rather to make this a migration issue, which is a convenient way for those in power to say we're doing something when we haven't been able to do something to help make your life better for the last 25 years. Is it possible, though, to judge how 
successful or otherwise a politician would be if he or she, she came forward with as, as stark a message as that? Well, that's essentially been the message that we've been getting. Uh, Ramaphosa himself, during the presidential campaign, went to the townships and said, we need to control foreign business here. All of the parties have been racing. The, the Democratic Alliance had, had banners across, close, basically enforce the border, close the border. Mm-hmm. We've heard that from across the ANC. Mm-hmm. Not everyone, but it's been a popular opinion. And we're hearing it. it's something that they've learned from people on the ground who are willing to accept this narrative, the fake news that they're getting from politicians, that the reason they don't have jobs, the reason their, their wives, their girlfriends, their daughters are being raped is because of foreigners. And that is the big fake news, and it is driving politics. Nomfer, do a thought on that before we bring things to a close. This sense that if we get rid of foreigners, our problems will go. Our problems will continue because we are our problems. And we have to begin to look at addressing the structural issues and not our leaders trying to defect away from us holding them accountable in the name of naming xenophobia. I think that is what we need to go back to. We've obviously concentrated on South Africa in this programme, but we have touched upon its neighbours and obviously Nigeria because of the current difficulties between the two. But when you look across the continent uh, at this issue, how much... Can this be translated to so many other, particularly countries with huge cities in? I mean, most obviously Lagos, but others too. I think the South Africa case is, is quite unique in terms of how it just gets uh, foreign-born Africans and foreign nationals get blamed for a lot of it, as opposed to maybe, say, in Zambia, where you might have anti-Chinese protests based on Chinese government influence or t- or allegations that they're taking over firms, or you might have in Kenya targeting of Somalis and things like this. So I think that's where it's different in the South African context. It's, it's, it's a whole swathe of the continent that's getting targeted in these attacks. One last question, and perhaps a brief thought from all of you. Rashley, let me start with you. Is immigration going to become a running theme in Africa like it is, for example, in Europe, the United States, other parts of the world? I'd leave that to my more learned colleagues to answer definitively. <laughs> but um, what I would say is that what's happening nationally with anti-foreigner sentiment and xenophobic sentiment has certainly played into what's happening in our country. And in an alarming way, we've seen our politicians taking notes from the worst of their peers internationally and in how they uh, win over loyalty. But what I do want to just add as a closing thought is that in South Africa particularly, we have a predisposition towards violence in many flavors, so to speak. The gender-based violence and femicide that has flared up alongside the xenophobic violence. Violent crime is up. And this goes far, far back into our history. It goes into the movement of people. When you look at the hostels as the epicenter of this violence, the hostels themselves play such a key role in South Africa's history because when loads of people across South Africa were evicted from land, from farms where they were tenants and they had rights, they had nowhere to go. And many of these people ended up in the hostels. And from there, you see this breeding of so much social problems. So I think South Africa has deep wounds that have not been healed by the sort of superficial negotiation around 94 that are kind of erupting into the present that that needs maybe a deeper, detailed solution that's unique to South Africa. Um, let me stay with that immigration as a running theme in, in the continent. Um, Lauren Landau, a final thought on that. Clearly, it's become a major part of, as, as South African politics have become more competitive, it's become very visible here. And it has echoes of what's happening in the United States or in the EU. Right now, I think across Africa, you see a tension. So the African Union is pushing very much for as it has for many years, a kind of open borders, freer movement. But what we're seeing in South Africa, but also across the continent, 
partially under pressure from the European Union, is a closure, is an effort, uh, a sort of reassertion of nationalism, a reassertion of saying, we are poor, we have problems, we have to solve our problems before we can uh, address anyone else. And I do think that that is, as, as we've heard before, is counterproductive. Uh, many countries need trade, they need migration as part of, of a, a solution to those very problems that they're now claiming to solve by closing the borders. And Nomfunda, your work involves reconciliation, and this is clearly a big part of that. Yeah, no, definitely. And I mean, in, in close, I'll say what, what we usually say in psychology around compulsive repetition that when you don't deal with trauma and your wound, mm. it will keep on, history will keep on repeating itself. And the more it repeats itself, the higher the price. So as long as we don't deal with the psyche, the socioeconomic stuff, holding our leaders accountable, and these underlying issues that are driving the violence related to migration, then of course, violence related to migration as an expression of these frustrations, unfortunately, is going to continue. We are stuck in the cycle of conflict, as I said, and we need a different kind of leadership, a bolder leadership that is able to understand and have a more nuanced picture of not just the nations that they are leading, but of Africa as a whole. Something has got to shift because we are all now stuck. What we are doing is not working. And until we understand that and come with a different way, as they say that madness is doing the same thing over and over but getting the same result. Jason, a final thought from you on that before we close. Yeah, I think uh, Professor Lando touched on it, is the fact that um, the World Economic Forum, a lot of the chatter and the talk was meant to be about freedom of movement. It was meant to be about the African Continental Free Trade Agreement. And um, yeah, it was it was particularly apt that this was overshadowed by violence and domestic issues and showing, I suppose, that there's been a lot of speculation now about what this will mean for the Continental Free Trade Agreement and freedom movement and the amount of hurdles that have to be passed for people to move around uh, the continent. So I, th- I think that, um, you know, moving forward in line with the kind of national uh, conversation that people like President Ramaphosa, but also the opposition, we've touched on the DA and others playing into this populism, have to have an honest conversation because it's all well and good pre-election making these inflammatory comments, but post-election you have to deal with the problems when people take you up on it. Mm-hmm. And and not to lay all the blame at political parties, but they're definitely, we've, we've seen incidents where you know, throwaway comments fuel frustration and, and give a voice to it. So. Thank you to uh, Professor Lauren Landau, uh, Nomfundu Mahafi, Barashni Pillay, Jason Robinson. Thank you all very much indeed. If you'd like to listen to the programme again or any other from the archive, you can listen back online by searching for BBC The Real Story. And we'd love to hear your thoughts on the programme. You can email us at therealstory at bbc.co.uk. From me, And the team, that's the real story for this week. Thank you very much for listening.